Please take your Bibles and turn to uh, the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 4. It is so good uh, to be able to look into God's Word. And, you know, I hope you uh, appreciate what we do as a church, which is we read God's Word, we uh, want to study God's Word, and when we sing, we want to sing about God's Word. And the reason that we do that is because God's Word is living and active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to pierce both joint and marrow and to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what God's Word is here to do for us, and as God's children, it is also the means by which we have received the gospel message and the hope of salvation. It is God's word to us so that those who believe what it says about Christ and who Christ is may have everlasting life. And that blind man that we read about in the gospel of John chapter 9, as, as Kevin was reading it, I was just so reminded of my blindness prior to Christ. Blind, living in darkness, couldn't see my left hand from my right hand, couldn't see that I was living under the judgment of God and that I was a sinner before him. I couldn't see the glory of God. I couldn't see his kindness. I couldn't see his um, love. I couldn't see his justice. I couldn't see what a great provider he is and how he cares for me. And I was blind to my sin. I couldn't see my own rebellion. I couldn't see the darkness of my own heart until Christ opened my eyes, until he revealed himself to me. And in seeing Christ, suddenly when you look at him, you are all at once unraveled before him because his presence and seeing him clearly causes you to see yourself clearly. Because as he gives himself to the world and he says, this is what beauty and perfection and holiness and goodness looks like. Suddenly, when you see that, you realize all at once that you are not that. But then you see that he is a good and a merciful Savior who loved you so much that he came into the world to become a man and then to give his life to pay the price for your sin, to take the judgment that you deserved and then to give you eternal life. And all at once, you realize what a joy it is to now finally see that there is a savior of the world that by which you can be reconciled to God. And now the world makes sense. I was blind and now I see. And my prayer, beloved, for each of us is that as we go through the Gospel of John and we study it and we read about it, that we would truly see the glory of Christ 
and see the salvation he's given to us. And then as we're going to see today, that in taking that miraculous gift that he has given us, Christ himself, and forgiving us of our sin, that we would also be those who have been so marveled by it that we would be a people that want to take that message out to the world. I mean, that's really what we're going to see in John chapter 4. What we're going to see is the conclusion or the result, rather, of that conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman. Because as he presents himself to her, who she couldn't see at first, she said, he says, I am he, I am the Messiah. And as a result of seeing the Messiah, the Samaritan woman is converted and transformed on the inside And then she leaves to go into the city to do something. And what she goes to do is to tell people, come and see the Messiah. Is this, this is the one. And so it is a product of being saved by God to be those like the blind man and like the Samaritan woman that want to testify to others of the goodness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this passage, and we will look at it in a bit of detail, not too much detail this morning, um, but let us hear God's word and ask him for blessing. So let's first pray, and then I will read the passage. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning with, again, with boldness, not because we are deserving, not because we are worthy, not because we have earned a right to, not because we have earned our keep, not because we have done good works, not because we feed the poor and help the sick, not because we raise our families in the fear and admonition of the Lord, not because we teach God's word, not because we do not steal and not because we do not commit adultery, not because of anything good in us. Our boldness is not based on our own doing. It's not based on our works or our righteousness in any way. But we come boldly before your throne of grace because we appeal to the Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, alone. It is his goodness and it is his righteousness. It is his purity and holiness. It is his life of perfection and perfect obedience to your law. And then laying down his life to die for our sin and to rise again for our justification and to ascend back into heaven to the glory that belongs to him alone that gives us the boldness to come before you. Because Christ lives, we live. Because Christ is seated at your right hand, we are coming to you this morning with boldness because we have a mediator and a savior who stands in our place. 
And we thank you that we can call you Father. That in a world that is broken, in a world that is, has relationships that are falling apart, yet we can come before you and cry out to you, Abba Father, and ask you for your blessing. We ask specifically for your blessing on your word this morning to our hearts as we look at this chapter, that you would help us to see more clearly, Father, our place and calling in this world as Jesus teaches his disciples about evangelism, that we would see and marvel at the conversion of our own souls and what you have done to give us sight and to give us life when we were once blind and when we were once dead in our sin. May that truth never become so familiar to us, Father, that we fail to remember the condition of our souls before being saved. But may we be so moved by it as we see the Samaritan woman and the salvation of a, of a city of people that we are moved to prioritize and to make of utmost importance Christ in our life and the proclamation of his name to the nations. Bless us, O Holy Spirit, this morning. Bless the hearing and the reading of your word, and may it transform us and renew us from within, and may it pierce both the joint and marrow of our hearts and our souls, that we might be convicted of our sin, that we might be challenged to live in a way that pleases you, and that we might be equipped to do so. For it's in the name of Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. John chapter 4, verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What a testimony. These verses put before us the result of that conversation with Jesus, the conversion of the Samaritan woman. And really, this is the first recorded cross-cultural evangelism that takes place in the New Testament. This is the first recorded instance where the gospel is actually going beyond the borders of Israel. If you remember, and Kevin referred to this in his prayer, he was talking and praying in, about uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden and the fall of man. And if you look back at the fall, you know that Adam, when he sinned and Eve sinned and they were cast out of the garden, one of the things that God told Adam and Eve to do before they fell into sin, one of his commandments was to go and have dominion over the earth and to populate the earth, uh, uh, reproduce, populate the earth so that people may go out into the world. And they were to do that in obedience and exercise dominion. And they were to honor God in the world that God had made. And of course, when they fell into sin, uh, they came out of that kingdom of God that he had made, and they were now living in a fallen world. And one of the things you see in the uh, beginning pages of Genesis is, if you remember Noah, and God judges the heavens and the earth uh, through the flood waters, right, because of their sin, uh, which is, of course, a picture of being in Christ in the ark. But, but as Noah comes and the earth is repopulated, then you have this instant where um, the people are now gathering together in this place called Babel, and they're building this tower to reach up to God. And one of the reasons that God comes down, and remember, he confuses their language and they're scattered. One of the reasons he does that is because those nations, or those people, rather, because they're not nations yet, but the people, even in Adam and Eve, were supposed to go and to populate the earth. But what were they doing? They were staying there, and they were building a tower, trying to reach into the heavens. And once again, the people are not doing what they were supposed to do. And so God comes down, and he confuses their language. And in Genesis 12, they, they, they scatter out to all of the different places. And now you have the birth of all of these different nations all of these different tribes and tongues and people. And so this one group of people from, no from Adam and Eve and from Noah are now dispersed into the ends of the earth. And so what God does is he decides to save a group of people to call them his own out of all of those nations now that have scattered the earth, and he chooses this nation of Israel. And the scriptures are clear that this nation of Israel, which is not a nation, it's at first Abraham. But Abraham is not a, he's not a righteous man. He's not a good man. He's a pagan. He's an idolater. 
He's a worshiper of false gods, and he was raised in a family of false gods. And yet God comes down and he saves and he calls this man Abraham. And then through Abraham's seed, this nation is born called Israel. And so God chooses to show them grace and to give them his word. And then he wants to reveal his salvation to this nation of Israel so that they would be a, a light unto the people, so that the people, other nations, might see God and come to him for saving. And so this was Israel's mission was to take this truth about God to the nations. This is why they were given the law. This is why they were given the promises. This is why God worked with them, not because of anything in them, but because he wanted to show himself to them so that they would take this word to the nations. And of course, what we find in the Old Testament is that they didn't do it. Over and over again, Israel became um, turned in on itself. Israel became a nation that was more concerned about its wealth and its prosperity and its influence. And Israel became a nation that turned against God's promises, that turned against his word. And they lived in rebellion against him, to which God sent these prophets. And these prophets would tell them and remind them of God's word and remind them of the promises and remind them of what they were supposed to do. And so you would hear words from the prophets like in Isaiah 45, uh, 20 to 23, that are reminding Israel of God's desire for the nations. Um, Jonah, remember Jonah? He had to be reminded of it. He didn't even want to go to Nineveh. But God sends him there anyway to go outside. But here's like what Isaiah 45, 20 to 23 says. He says, assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. God is the Savior of the world for the nations. God is saying, go to the ends of the earth, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Not just Israel. Isaiah 49, 6. It is too Light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you, the nation of Israel, as a light for the nations. Why? So that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 
And so the response of the Samaritan woman here in verses 27 to 30, in, back in John 4, and the response of those Samaritans that she was bearing witness to in verses 39 to 42, what they show is that Jesus, the true Israel, Jesus was bringing the fulfillment of those promises and the fulfillment of God's word to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, to bring sinners beyond the borders of Israel that they would come to the Savior and be saved. Jesus did everything that Israel and all the nations of the world could not and would not do. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and the salvation of these Samaritans is a picture of that, that the nations are beginning to come to the light of the world. And it's a preview of that glorious truth and a foreshadowing of what ultimately is to come through our evangelism of the nations. And so that's why right there in the middle of both of those responses of the Samaritan woman and the city, our Lord uses this opportunity to teach his disciples about their mission in this world and to teach them about the harvest, that the harvest for souls and for salvation is ripe. And he's going to explain this to them over and over again because like the, dis the disciples, like us, are slow. We're slow. We're slow to understand it. We're slow to take it to heart. We're slow to realize and really to marvel at the salvation to such a point that we become more and more active. We turn in on ourselves so easy. And Jesus is going to help them see the joy of obeying God and doing what he has called them to do. And, and it was funny, I was coming into church today and was listening to, a, I won't name the podcast, but you can see I wrote it on this because it came to my mind. I didn't want to forget. I found this empty envelope in my car and I wanted to write it down so I wouldn't forget. But the advertisement on this, this app, I was listening to some hymns, and it always interrupts the hymns and gives you some worldly advertisement. And so the advertisement was, joy is, not an, it, joy is an act of resistance. Joy is an act of resistance is what it, it's trying to say. And so, you know, resist your sadness and resist this by getting this app or apparently, right, and doing what you want. And I, and I just wrote down, joy is not an act of resistance. Joy is a result of obedience, first of Christ for sinners in their place, and then secondly, of saved sinners that are walking as Christ wants them to walk. That's, that's what joy is the result of. It's, it's not a result of my resistance. 
Joy is the result of what Christ has done to redeem me. And then joy comes from walking in a way that pleases him. That's joy. So, here we have then this mission that we've been called to, to enter into this labor of sowing and seed and reaping the harvest among the nations. It's a mission that the church is called to engage in and the rewards are eternal and the joy is everlasting and we need to take that to heart. And so here we have this salvation of this Samaritan woman. And so this conversion, I'm gonna, we're going to look at the conversion of the woman and the city first, and then we'll look at that commission. But here you, you get this picture of the marvel of conversion. If we're going to engage the world, we need to marvel at what conversion looks like. And so after this talk in verse 27, we, we read that just then, this is as Jesus revealed himself to this woman as the Messiah, his disciples came back. So he's having this conversation. As he's having this conversation, they come back as he tells her he's the Messiah. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The, the point of this is that conversion reminds us here that no one is beyond reach. And I say that because the disciples were marveling as Jesus talked to this Samaritan woman because she was not only a Samaritan, as we saw last week, but she was a woman. Here's how they looked at women in, in the first century Judaism and in, the, in general. Um, one author says, some, though by no means all, Jewish thought held that for a rabbi to talk much with a woman, even his own wife, was at best a waste of time and worst a diversion from the study of the Torah. How about that? How about that? I'll tell that to Nancy when I get home. Nancy, you're, it's a waste of time. I'm just going to go read the Bible, right? So some rabbis went so far as to suggest that to provide their daughters with a knowledge of the Torah was as inappropriate as to teach them I don't know, lechery or lechery. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know what that meant. It meant to sell them into prostitution. Some rabbis went so far as to suggest that to provide their daughters with a knowledge of the Torah was as inappropriate as to teach them lechery. Wow. This is, this is how they looked at women in, in this world. And so you can kind of understand when the disciples come back, and they see Jesus talking to this woman, a rabbi, their rabbi. They're a little shocked, but they don't say anything. They don't say, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? 
this is a normal response for them, but it's a normal response that Jesus really received throughout his ministry. See, Jesus was not like other men. Jesus was not like us. He was not like the world that created barriers among people. Jesus does not put up walls and barriers among, among people. I will save these and I will talk to these. I will not talk to them. I will talk to them. I will show favoritism to the rich. I will not show favoritism to the poor. Uh, we do that all the time. We look at each other and situations in life and we put all kinds of barriers into place. Social barriers, economic barriers, status barriers, family barriers. We, we create things and divisions with people, but Jesus, he doesn't do that because he comes among all sinners to offer himself to sinners to offer himself to the world to save them. You see, the Pharisees struggled with this when they saw him over and over again. It says in Luke 15, 1-2, that the Pharisees grumbled about him. It said, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying... This man receives sinners and eats with them. But that's what Christ came to do. We marvel and grumble, but Jesus welcomes all who will come to him, even a Samaritan woman who had five husbands and was living with a man that was not her husband. And we should not marvel at God saving sinners either. We should not marvel like the disciples did because when Jesus comes, he comes to save. And when we look at those that he saves, we should rejoice with him. In fact, if we're going to marvel at Jesus converting sinners, let's marvel at what Jesus marvels at. You know, Jesus marvels at two things in the scriptures. You know what they are? Jesus marvels at those who do not believe. He says, he's amazed in Mark 6, 6. He marvels that he does these things before them and they do not believe. And then you know what else Jesus marvels at? Jesus marvels when God overcomes the rebellion and someone does believe. He marvels at God's work of redemption. That's what he says in Luke 7, 9. How can they not believe? Mark 6, 6. After all that I'm doing, how can they not believe? Then when they're saved, look at the power of God unto salvation, and he gives glory to his Father. That's how we need to see the world. How can the world not believe in this Jesus who saves? And so conversion is a marvelous truth that should be marveled at. Here's, here's how J.C. Ryle put it. I like to quote from him because I love his commentary on this book. 
Conversion means that someone becomes a new creature. All things passed away, all things become new. Whereas at one point a person is consumed with the things of this world, now the person thinks of the truths about the Savior they have come unto. A converted person no longer cares for what he once cared for. A new tenant is in the house. A new pilot is at the helm. The whole world looks different. All things have become new. That's what happened with this Samaritan woman. In any case, what could have been a moment of rejoicing with Jesus over this woman's belief instead turned into this somewhat awkward moment And as the disciples came back, they looked on in silent amazement. And I think the woman senses the tension among the disciples. And so John says, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Why did she leave her water jar there? I don't think she left her water jar there by accident because she was feeling awkward, even though the disciples were a little awkward about it. I think she left her water jar there because of what happens when one is converted to Christ. There are new priorities in your life. When one is converted unto Jesus, at that moment, everything in her life and the cares of this world took a distant second place to the Messiah. She needed water because she was thirsty. That's why she went to the well. She brought her jar with her in the heat of the day in the sun She was ashamed, remember, because of her five husbands and her sin, so she came alone. And she came there because she's thirsty. And she came there because she needed water to wash her dishes, to clean her hands, to make her food, to get all of the concerns and the necessities of life, food and water, necessities in life, and she came because she needed that thing in order to survive that next day. We take water for granted, right? Dean is not here this morning, but Dean works for the water company in Vista, and we take it for granted. We go into our, into our bathrooms or our kitchens, and we turn on the faucet, and here comes flowing clean water you can drink And we're so spoiled by it that we even purify it so that it tastes better. Like, water is a necessity of life that they had to get every single day. They had to go to a well to get it. They didn't have plumbing. And so she wants to care for her body. We concern ourselves with Wi-Fi hotspots and fixing our iPhone and and getting our computers fixed and up and running, and we don't think about water and the daily needs, but this is what consumed them in their world. And when she came to get water, she found something infinitely more important. 
She came for physical water, but she left with living water. Living water that was welling up within her, just as Jesus said it would. And she would become thirsty again for physical water and go back on that trip eventually. But she would never be thirsty again for salvation. She would never be thirsty again for eternal life. She would never have to be thirsty again for the forgiveness of her sins because Jesus presented himself to her as the Savior of the world, as the Messiah. And once she laid eyes on the Messiah, nothing else mattered. I hope that's a challenge for you because it is for me. When you see Jesus... What is your priority in this life? What is the most important thing for you? What is it that drives you and moves you in the world to pursue with your greatest energy and effort in life? What is it you're willing to sacrifice in order to achieve something in life? How much are you willing to give for whatever that is? How much are you willing to give for it? And whatever that thing is that you want and you pursue in life, is it worth more to you than Jesus? Or is Christ the priority in your life? When you see the world, do you see the world through the way that Christ sees the world? Or do you see the world the way the world sees the world, which is, all it is is a place for me to get food and water and drink. And I want to satisfy myself with the things of this world and nothing else matters. I hope and I don't believe that's the way you look at the world. I think believers, when they are truly converted and they see Christ for who he really is, I think what happens when you become a new creature is all of your priorities in life are turned upside down. The one that takes priority in the Christian's heart and life is the priority of Christ. That's what you see in this woman. Now, this woman wouldn't maintain that zeal Forever, we, we do sin and we become weak and, and we lose priority, but God is forgiving. But for this moment, you see what it should look like in our hearts. And so you remember where we talked about last week, the fact that she came during the day, and I mentioned that this morning, and we talked about the Nick, contrast with Nicodemus who came at night. And we saw how Jesus said that those who do not want to come to the light, they don't come lest their deeds are exposed. But in contrast, there are those who come to the light and they do what is true because they are not afraid of being exposed by the light any longer. And so this Samaritan woman now, not only does she have a new priority, but she has a new zeal. And so God works in her as she leaves her water jar there because of excitement about Christ and what she has found, and she races into town with this newfound zeal to do one thing, to witness 
to Jesus, and she says to the people, come to Jesus. Come and see the Savior of the world. No longer ashamed of her sin, no longer ashamed of her guilt that caused her to be separated from these people, her past life of sin. Now she comes, once a social outcast, and she comes directly to the people in order to tell them to come and see the one who knows everything about me. And I believe this is the Christ. That's what she means when she says, can this be the Christ? What she's doing there is not doubting that it's the Christ, but she's putting the question before them as an act of humility and a, re and a realization that they might reject her because of her past. And so she doesn't want to just come out and say, hey, this is the Christ, because they'll look at her as a social outcast and they'll be like, what do you know? And they'll disregard her. So she comes and she actually says, can this be the Christ? Not doubting, but as a way of saying, this is the Christ. Come, come and see him. And so... She doesn't want to provoke opposition. And so they see her joy. They see her transformation from shame to boldness. They see something has happened to this woman that is marvelous. And they have to go see. How about that? You go out into the world, the world that knows you as a sinner. Maybe it's just me. But when people look at me, they know I'm a sinner because I sin. I do at home. My family knows I'm a sinner. You guys here, you know I'm a sinner because of things that I do, and I'm not, I'm not perfect. But here's the thing. I know I'm not perfect, but I know that it's because I'm not perfect that I go out into the world and I say I'm not perfect but I know a Savior who is. And then I tell them about Jesus. That's how it is for the Samaritan woman. That's how it should be for you. You're not perfect. You don't need to be perfect to share the gospel. You don't need to have your life in order to tell people about Christ. It's because your life is not in order. It's because you and me are sinners. That's why we should go tell them there is a Savior who can forgive them of their sin. This is the whole point. And so the Samaritan woman goes, joy welling up within her, come and see Jesus. So, verse 39, we see the result. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me all that I ever did. And when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked Jesus to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. How gracious. What a great two days that must have been. Stayed there two days with them. And then many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. In other words, they're not saying I, we disregard your testimony, but they're saying your testimony was totally confirmed by this Jesus. Everything you said about this Jesus 
is confirmed by what he said. And now we see for ourselves, we have a new hope as well, that this indeed is the savior of the world. What a transformation, what, what conversions that God brings to the nations. And it occurred in both these groups of people. They went from unbelief to belief that Jesus is the savior of the world and they are rejoicing in that. It's good to see that joy in new believers. Anyway, the gospel is taking root as God promised. And so here in the middle of this conversation, we get this lesson from our Lord. In the middle of these events, rather, he drops this lesson for his disciples. And they said to him, after the, the woman leaves, the disciples come back. The woman leaves her jar. She goes into town. As she goes into town to share the gospel with these people, Meanwhile, John says, the disciples are urging Jesus, Rabbi, to eat. Just like the Samaritan woman was consumed with water, they're still consumed with food. They're urging him to eat, and Jesus looks at them. And he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? So they don't understand what Jesus is saying. And so he tells them, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is my priority. My priority is to save sinners and to do what God the Father has called me to do. This is what consumes Jesus in his life. And then he turns to them in verse 35, and he kind of, it kind of sounds like a, a proverb in a way. He goes, don't you say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? In other words, isn't when you look at your harvest and you look at things in a, in a natural sense, uh, don't you say like, hey, I can see things are growing and in four more months there's going to be this harvest where we'll all have to go out and reap from the harvest. He says, don't you say that? He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the field is white for harvest. You know what I think is happening there? This is totally... I don't know this for sure, um, but I think as Jesus is sitting there, remember the lady had gone back to the city to tell them about Jesus, and they all started coming to see Jesus, and I think Jesus is sitting at the well, and I think when he says, look and see, I think this crowd of people are coming to them while they're sitting at the well, and Jesus is saying, Pay attention now, disciples. The harvest is ripe, and it's ready, and this crowd of people are coming to see Jesus, a crowd of people that will be saved from their sin. Look up and lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. 
And then he says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. He says, it's already happening. It's already people are coming to me and being redeemed and they are being reaped and those who are reaping them and calling them to come to me are receiving wages. And he says, and they're gathering fruit for eternal life. You do realize that when you present the gospel to someone and someone hears that gospel and comes to faith in Christ, that that is a, a reward for, for you for eternity. That when you share the gospel and you call someone to Christ and to, to faith in him and they're saved, that is an eternal reward for you that you may not see it now. But the thing is, is it's not only for those who reap but it's also for those who sow. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, because that was John the Baptist, the Old Testament prophets. They all labored and sowed this seed, right? And he's saying, now I'm sending you to reap that for which you did not labor. He says, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So in other words, the time is now. The fields are ripe. Since the time of Christ, people have been laboring, sowing, reaping, sowing, reaping, sowing, and we are in that labor. We sow the word of God and we reap. And the awesome thing is, whether you sow or reap, as long as you're doing one of them, the rewards are eternal. The rewards are eternal. Every time you sow the seed of God's word, you may not see the fruit today and you may not know what happened when you shared the gospel with that person. You may not know if they ever come to faith in Christ. You don't know, and I don't know. But what we do know is every time that word of God is sown, God is using it for his glory. And one day when we get to heaven, beloved, you know how the scriptures talk about receiving a crown of glory you know, we receive this crown of diadems and we're going to lay them at Jesus' feet. There are going to be all kinds of rewards that God gives to his people for the work that they have done while on this earth. And we don't do the work that we do for rewards, but we do them because of our love for Christ and the fact that he even rewards us is a reason to rejoice you don't need to be the one that leads the sinner to come to Christ at that moment. That may never happen in your life. You may never be the one to reap. But you at least need to be the one to sow. If nothing else, beloved, sow the word of God with your friends and your family and your loved ones. At least tell them Come and see Jesus. And the Lord will bless 
that endeavor. So this is what we're left with in verse 38. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus, the Messiah of the world, let us labor for his kingdom, beloved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this passage. We thank you for the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for reaching out into the ends of the earth to save sinners among whom we are. Even here in this place, Father, there are sinners from different tribes and tongues and nations. We don't have all of the same background. We don't all have the same economic status or cultural history. We don't all have the same social status or even religious backgrounds. But what we do have is the Savior of the world. We thank you for coming to us and for reaching into our hearts and our lives and for saving us. We thank you for laying down your life to pay the price for our sin for taking our sin upon your shoulders and for having the iniquity of us all laid upon you. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so you were silent. And you went to be slaughtered in our place. We thank you for that redemption and for the hope that we have in you. We thank you for causing us to be born again and for giving us sight to see when we couldn't see. We thank you for making us new creatures in your name and for giving us of your Holy Spirit to help us and to lead us and to guide us into works of righteousness. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to take your words to heart here, that we would prioritize what you prioritized that we would pursue what you pursued, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul as you loved your Father when you were living here and even now love him. Help us, Father, to walk obediently to you and to be faithful laborers in your kingdom. Help us not to be ashamed to call others to come to Christ. Help us to be bold to testify of his name and that we might rejoice before them in our own salvation. And we ask, O Father, though we may not all be reapers here, we pray that you would help each of us here to at least be a sower of the seed, at least to speak of Christ in our hearts and in our lives with our word, our speech, our lips. Help us to do that in the way that we live our lives and at work and at home and at play. May Christ always be on our lips and may we always be asking and inviting people to come and see him. And may you bless that word and bless that labor 
And may we look forward, as we do, we do look forward, Father, to the day of rejoicing when we will see that all of our labor in the Lord is not in vain, but you have used it and you have brought glory to your name. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name, amen.